don't think people really tell you about this um, when you start a company where it's so much about also figuring out who you are apart from just you know the company itself because it really shapes the type of product and the type of impact that you can have. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thanks for joining us today on the Freestar Blood, Sweat, and CPMs podcast. I am your host, Jeff Kudashevich. And I'm Andy Forwork, your co-host here, helping you navigate through this wild world of ad tech. Uh, Andy, what is this week, uh, 10,000 of quarantine? 10,000 or 11,000, not keeping track anymore, man. <laughs> <laughs> on uh, on today's show, just want to give everybody a quick rundown. We're doing our, our standard uh, Reddit ad ops threads of the week where we break down uh, the hot button items of the day. We are also speaking with our special guest, Smita Saxena, the CEO and founder of Stanza. Um, Andy, before we jump into that, uh, when we're recording, we're a couple days before the NBA relaunch on July 31st. So by the time this comes out, hopefully, knock on wood, crossing fingers, crossing toes, everything you got to cross, cross it. Uh, we will have a normal launch of NBA basketball. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm so happy. I'm gonna cry, Andy. What, what, what are you, what are you missing the most these days? Well, uh, you know, baseball did just start too, and I know that's boring for most people, but for me, it's been a pleasure having that back. Just having some normal normalcies going on like sports again is is going to be nice i know the season's a little bit late for the nba but it's pretty exciting they're just going into you know almost like a playoff format right away it's going to be good yeah like a four-month break and then a cup you know a few warm-up games and boom yeah right in the get, playoff get yourself back into shape and you know then <laughs> lebron will start draining some threes and you know dunking on fools and andy you're always in nba shape right Oh yeah. I mean, I get out there on the court, you know, I'm dunking and <laughs> 360 jabs. I mean, there's a lot of cardio that goes on over here, so yeah. <laughs> awesome. Andy, what do you say we jump into our Reddit threads and uh start uh answering some questions, getting our verbal cardio in? Yeah, looking forward to it. Let's go. All right, Andy, now the moment of truth. Our time to break down the top Reddit ad ops threads of the week. In case you don't know, which I would imagine most don't, I actually started the ad ops subreddit in 2012, and it's now somehow become one of the leading ad ops communities in the industry. What do you think, Andy? Yeah, it's a great community. Happy to be a part of it. Uh, I'm excited for this segment to just run down all the different threads that we see over the weeks and, you know, give our opinions on it. Awesome, man. All right, Andy, our first thread is entitled Publishers, what is your secret sauce for managing unified pricing rules, as we say, uh, UPRs, yet another acronym in GAM. Just a quick recap of what the user is saying here. What data points do you use for analysis? Uh, do you use any tools to find out optimal fo- uh, floor pricing? How frequently do you change your floors? I think I, I want to preface a little bit of, of this, Andy, you know, just talking through the second to first price shift that we saw with Adex uh, last year in Q3, that obviously put a lot of these businesses who might focus exclusively on setting floors on an axis certainly is still being felt in uh, a lot of companies, publishers in particular, dealing with the 
the outcomes of that. How, how are you feeling about flooring strategies these days, Andy? Well, I've kind of always been one of the non-floor type of uh, way of looking at it, I suppose. But we previously were just kind of like hoping that the bids came in and, you know, we didn't really necessarily need to floor those. Or if we did, the strategy there was to try to, you know, get ADEX to, to bid higher than just like a penny more is kind of the old traditional way, right? So yeah, Andy, one, just, uh, just jumping in, one of the things that we were sort of talking about when we were prepping for this thread, you sort of were thinking for pubs who are maybe more on the sophisticated side, more technically savvy, trying to find ways to automate or, or partially automate. You want to talk about the GAM API idea and kind of, I guess, how that fell quickly on its face? Yeah, I mean, it's to the one of the questions this user's asking is like kind of how frequently do you change the floor prices, which ultimately makes you kind of wonder, well, is there a way that I could use some machine learning or some science to you know figure out what the best floors are at the right times? And unfortunately, it doesn't look like there's any API method to connect GAM. So would would love to see something like that from them uh, for people to be able to manage these at a, a, a higher level, I think, a more sophisticated yeah. level. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I do want to touch on the specific asks here. What data points? How frequent? How do you figure out optimal flooring? I'd break it down into patience, reviewing the same data each time you look, and not expecting a massive change. These are these are the types of things that take time. There will be gradual improvements as you go. You might have setbacks. I typically like to review floors, but I don't like to change them as frequently as some of the users here, two, three days, four days. I like to give it at least a week to two weeks before I actually make the next change. I think that that might just be my own philosophy. I don't know that there's a a silver bullet on this answer, but that's the way I've typically tended to floors, so to speak. As far as what data do you look at, it'll be different business to business. I think typically you look at eCPM, knowing that you're potentially flooring bidders, knowing that you're flooring addicts. How does that intertwine with your direct sales philosophy? Really looking at what are you trying to do? Just increase your CPM? Are you trying to make the most revenue? Are you trying to do a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B? And just be consistent right? So if you're looking at ADEX coverage or, or fill, what what are you trying to hit? 50%, 60%? So we just want to net out the best revenue for our publishers. When I've done it in the past, I, I usually just care about revenue at the end of the day. Next up, the question here is pre-bid setup in GAM, uh, creatives with serve into a safe frame or without. Essentially, the user's asking, when you connect pre-bid and GAM, do you want to enable serve into a safe frame? Andy, this is much more your your sort of wheelhouse here. I would love to just steal your thunder and and verbatim give the answers you gave when we prepped for this question, but I figure I, I will allow you to answer <laughs> in your own words and not steal your answer. Yeah. So Jeff, I think, uh, you know, let's, let's start with iframe in general. This is a term that you know, is used and we hear this and what an iframe does is allows you to serve content into a a box on the page that is independent of the page that you are actually on. So in the iframe, you're going to have a different uh, domain that's producing the content in there. 
So this is where we kind of introduce the idea of safe frames. And then the opposite of safe frames are these, what they call friendly iframes or friendly frames. If you have a safe frame checked, uh, that means that you're going to be sandboxing your iframe. And, uh, you know, there are some limitations as to what the ad could do that's served into that iframe. And the biggest thing is um, getting to the the cookie data. The safe frame can prevent uh, the ad from seeing that user and, and then therefore, you know, not being able to really identify that maybe it's a good user um, for what they're targeting, right? All right, Andy, just jumping in real quick here, you mentioned cookies and how this affects the data that we see. I know when I hear that, my spidey sense goes off and I start thinking about the cookie-less world, unified identifiers, et cetera. How does this concept of cookie-less world mesh with this concept of safe framing, iframes, all of this boring uh, uh, ad tech jargon <laughs> you've been throwing at our users? Yeah, I think I think ultimately it's just like we're paving the way to more it being more acceptable to use safe frames. It's safer for the website in the sense that you know they can they can kind of block out things. Um, maybe an ad is expandable, or you know a redirect is in the ad, and that that this can help prevent that as well. Uh, so as we get into this cookieless world, I think they're going to be more popular. To go specifically into your question about like, you know, other IDs and other things that it could interact with, I think that's just all part of building and shaping this this future. So, you know, to, to give a recommendation to the user, if you're setting up pre-bid, you should you should probably be setting them up with friendly uh, friendly frames or, or the unchecked safe frame box uh, inside of GAM. Um, there is some more research that you could do on this, but it's it's my opinion that you should stick with friendly frames with proof. And the opposite of that obviously is you check it, you're you're getting less data about the user. CPMs are likely to be a little bit lower depending on the SSP. But the the pro there is you have more security on your site, le- less likely to get redirects and, and malicious ads. So I think at the end of the day, it's sort of a little bit of a trade-off. I, I've seen some people say, no, the CPMs are are, are the same. Uh, I don't know that I've seen that same data. Okay, moving on, Andy. Next up is an AdOps questions from a DevOps guy, which is not typical for us. Um, the user is basically saying, hey, I'm a DevOps person, system admin uh, for an agency that works with publishers. They're sort of dealing with how to combat IVT, invalid traffic, which if you don't know what that is, is bots, invalid, uh, non-human traffic coming to the site. Sometimes it's safe bots. Sometimes it's you bought suspect traffic and now you're bringing that suspect traffic to your site. Sometimes it happens without people knowing. When I read this thread, the sort of the first thing I thought of is this really shouldn't start with DevOps. I think maybe it ends with DevOps, but I don't think it should start with DevOps. The way I think about it is if you have media buyers, if you run an arbitrage business or you're just doing traffic acquisition, make sure you're doing that from safe, genuine sources with real people, real traffic. If you're not, well, not only should you just stop doing that, uh, in, in general, sort of, I, I think now this is my regular uh, soapbox item that I like to tell people to stop by, stop buying suspect traffic. 
but aside from that, really, that's where it, it should start and hopefully stop, right? right? That should hopefully be enough uh, difference in what you do as a business. Outside of that, we know that there's several people in our space, ad tech vendors like Integral Ad Science, White Ops, et cetera, who are monitoring and blocking in real time for suspect traffic sources. So if you want to use one of those sources, maybe you have some homegrown solution, I would likely say I wouldn't just rely on a homegrown solution exclusively. And then maybe if you've gone through all of these things and you figured out, okay, I've done everything I can. Now I want to dig a little deeper, get into my GA and, and start sort of looking at referral sources. And if you want to touch on the that aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, like this, if you're a DevOps guy, it's probably like, you know, they're trying to find traffic patterns and, and such. And really like the the you could go into GA, look at your referral traffic, you know, you're going to know if you're purchasing traffic or trying to acquire it, like Jeff mentioned, um, you should probably know where those sources are and be able to identify them. Um, you know, if if uh, you see anything in there that looks suspect, it's probably worth looking into. All right. Next up is Amazon UAM plus GAM plus another header baiting wrapper. The user sort of trying to ask us, you know, what's the difference between integrating Amazon UAM and GAM? Uh, winning bids going the gam for display the scenario is you you got you have to work with amazon to build the line items in your gam um and they're going to be very similar to what you would do to build pre-bid line items you know they're going to be price priority amazon uses their own um key values to uh kind of pair their pricing and, and their bidding model the the bidding that's happening, like if you have pre-bid on the page, then you're going to need to make sure that all of these bids are going in uh, with the pre-bid bids, everything that gets sent to GAM. Um, that stuff is all kind of available through Amazon's documentation as well as pre-bid, I believe. Like when every ad request or all the ads are going in and all the bids are requested, uh, it goes into GAM. You know, GAM is going to then decide, hey, is it an AdX line item that wins? Is it a pre-bid line item or is it Amazon? Uh, or maybe it's a direct ad. I don't know. It depends on the price, right? Uh, so it's always evaluating that. Highest bid should come through and, and win and then serve on the page for you. All right. Next thread, even though this guy deleted it, I still want to talk about it. The thread title is First Ad Tech Interview Trying to Understand Viewability. And essentially, the user was saying, hey, I'm interviewing for a job I basically know nothing about. I'm trying to get into your space of ad ops. So Andy, if you remember what they were asking about was, how do I help increase viewability or, or understand how viewability works, right? That was kind of the gist of, of what the yeah, user Yeah, and they having. wanted to be able to talk to that in their job interview too. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. this, which I, I, is, I just love, I just love the idea of going to a random forum and saying, hey, I, I don't know this job at all. Can you random people help me ace my interview? Brilliant, if you ask me. So I, I want to help that person, even though they, they've since deleted their thread. So first off, just looking at a site, you you can't really just see an ad unit and say, this is going to be the viewability. You can have some educated guesses based on your experience, right? So you want to look for things like higher viewability around sticky units or lazy loading or meshing the 
ads within the content of the page. You can't look at a, a random 300 by 250 on the page, just think really hard and say, oh yeah, that's 50% viewability or, or that's 10% viewability. Clearly there are certain segments of the site that we just know if, if you're talking about footer ads or ads that are significantly below the fold, below the fold, never going to be seen. You can guess those are probably going to be in the single digits, maybe you know fifteen percent or something like that. Outside of that, you're not really going to be able to to just guess. I try to do that, and sometimes I'm I'm right, and I and I flex, and, and other times I'm wrong. I might still flex, but for other purposes. Andy, what are your, any other thoughts on this? Well, if you really want the boring technical piece on this. No, uh, I, I, oh. I severely don't. I speak for all the users, but you put the sleep with that safe frames answer. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, I mean, the, the, you're right though, Jeff, you need data and you can't just look at a page. I mean, I could tell you events that you could look for to determine whether something's viewable or not. But that's not going to help you on a on a wide scale, right? Every browser, every user's window. I mean, I got this like thirty four inch widescreen monitor, so I probably oh, you got the thirty four inch widescreen monitor, huh? Yeah, I I don't know, it might Jeez. be thirty eight. I'm not actually sure, but oh, just yeah, I got this widescreen thirty four, thirty eight, fifty. Who knows, right? I get a lot of viewable ads, you know, on my <laughs> big browser. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so you gotta you gotta look at a lot of things. It's it's not like you could just go into a job interview and hopefully that's what they're looking for in the interview is that you can give them an intelligent answer like this. Whereas, you know, if you start telling them, "Oh, move this ad over there and do this," then maybe they were just seeking advice they don't know about. I don't know. Andy, the next thread is just a question that I lo- that I also love. No body description, just straight up one question. What is send all bids? double question mark, I should mention. Uh, this is obviously a, a pre-bid setting the user is asking about, but gave no context whatsoever. I love that. Andy, you want to dive on this? Yeah, it's just another method that um, pre-bid has available. So uh, when you're sending bids into GAM, you have the option of doing the default, which is pre-bid just picks the winner. So you know, 10, 10 auctions go out, three bids come back, Prebid says this is the winner. It's two dollars. Sends that to Gam. Uh, send all bids is the. Uh, it basically takes all those bids that we got. So if there were three bids, we send them all to Gam and let Gam do the auction and decide who wins. Realistically, Gam should never be picking you know anything but the highest bid. So um, this was kind of a stopgap for reporting, I think in in uh, in some setups. But I you know there's. There's other ways of looking at this um, to do it better. Uh, if you do send all bids, it, it tends to inflate your ad request to, to GAM. Uh, so you could potentially be causing issues. All right, Andy, I think we've put people to sleep uh, as much as I can stomach around this pre-bid stuff. What do you say we, we get on to a better, more fun topic? I don't know. I thought it was a lot of fun and I really enjoyed talking about technical things and putting all of you to sleep. (laughs) And now we get to speak to our special guest. I'm pleased to bring on Smita Saxena, who's the CEO and founder of Stanza, a company that builds software for organizations with events like the NFL, 
venues, artists, and election boards that makes it insanely easy for anyone to add their schedules to their calendars. Sansa takes care of updating people's calendars with changes or new events. Today, over 13 million calendar subscribers with over 1 billion events in their calendars rely on Stanza to stay informed. Welcome, Smita. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, guys. Awesome. So I'd like to first start off and, and kind of get a little bit of your background. So you could talk us through your transition from mathlete to uh, tech CEO. Sure, sure. I, you know, I love I love how people always laugh at that. Um, so my my background um, actually was entirely math all the way up through grad school. I grew up in the Middle East. I grew up in Saudi Arabia, and being an entrepreneur wasn't really something that was in any of our like you know dictionaries or just like. <laughs> sure. I think the one thing I remember was Google IPOing, and it felt like a universe away at that point. Um, somehow the stars aligned, things worked out and I ended up at Stanford for, for grad school. And um, it is really like not a joke when Stanford says that they're really behind like entrepreneurship and being a founder because it's it, they basically kind of lay out the infrastructure for you and the people that you meet to just make it a lot easier to even think of that as an option for you as a person. And so one of the things, you know, when I was at Stanford, I was in math, um, I was again in math, but I took one of the classes that was run by one of Napster's early employees, and we built a project out in the fintech space. And Stanford had just kicked off an accelerator called StartX that was their version of YC. Sure. Yeah, and I, I saw you had a, a few talks on there as well. Yeah, they're pretty great, pretty phenomenal group of people. It's also started by, you know, other Stanford students. That company actually ended up selling, you know, a few months after we started it. It was really a project. I wouldn't even call it a company. Through that, I got to meet some amazing people, great mentors, great, you know, investors. And so a few years later, when I was working in banking, and I started kind of using my calendar for the very first time. And uh, it was it was definitely a, a different switch, you know, because when you're in grad school, you just have all the time in the world, like you just kind of, you know, you can hang out in the quad, you know, spend time with your friends, and suddenly I'm in banking, and I have no time. So one of the things I did to keep myself sane was yoga classes, I used to have to type them into my BlackBerry calendar and my iPhone calendar, and it was a total pain. You had a BlackBerry and an iPhone? I had a BlackBerry because back then security was a thing, right? You needed you sure. needed to use BlackBerry for your like you know banking stuff, and then sure. your, your iPhone for for your you know yeah, it was old school. It wasn't even that old school. It was like just you know five or six years ago. So <laughs> initially, my problem was just like, how is it so difficult to get the stuff into my calendar and make sure it's being updated? So like, I'd show up to these classes, and sometimes it'd be canceled, or the teacher would be subbed out, and I'm like, this can't be this this complicated. So it was like a personal problem. And when I started talking to people about it, a lot of people kind of came around it. And we actually ended up raising money to to figure it out. And that's how, you know, I became a founder and a, and a CEO. I'm skipping a lot of steps here. It wasn't sure. as, as easy as I'm making it sound right now. <laughs> it, it sounded like a Disney kind of yeah, uh, yeah, no. picture. <laughs> It was, it was a lot of like, it really, I think I'll talk about this a little bit more as well. Like it was just the people. Like I think once you're at the right place with the right people who kind of see the vision, they're just excited to see it go further. So they got behind it and it was honestly because of them, I think our early investors that this became bigger than what I'd initially imagined it to be. Um, so, you know, being in the hub of like the tech and startup world, what are some of the unique challenges that you've had to overcome as a leader in San Francisco? Yeah, so I am a woman and I'm definitely a minority. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. 
So I think I think my experience is, you know, just just categorically going to be different. I'm also from outside of the states. I've lived most of my life, you know, in the Middle East. So I think in one way, I, you know, my approach to this whole thing has just been it's it's incredibly grateful. Like I didn't even know this was an option for me like while while growing up. At the same time, like I think one of the biggest challenges that I had was finding people that came to like I guess building a company or being part of a company with the same attitude. Because I do feel like, you know, the early days of Stanza, I think what was raging through Silicon Valley was the bro culture. It's like, you know, we're here, we're here to kind of like drink our way through our jobs and, you know, have a ton of fun along with it, which is phenomenal. But really, I felt like it was it was a little bit of like, hey, growth first and people second. So I think the hardest part for for me personally was building a team and finding a group of people that were really thinking about this the same way that I was, which is let's build something that's going to last and let's build it with people that, you know, are thinking about it from, you know, perspective of diversity and inclusion and really believing in it versus, hey, you know, I have a page on my website about it. Yeah, I was going to, it's kind of interesting you bring that up. You know, you, you mentioned actually building that into the culture art. Are there like a one or two kind of things that really stick out where you kind of have that as a new employee or through the hiring process or whatever it might be where, you know, this is ingrained in the fiber of our, you know, of our company? Yeah, I think, you know, I think a really good analogy for this is like how life is formed. Like, you you know, you have like one cell that splits into two, then splits into four and eight. But really those initial cells kind of decide like how the rest of, you know, the rest of the cells are going to look like. So I think one of the things that we did was the core group of people and the people that have stayed with the company just came from very diverse backgrounds themselves. So when we went out there and we were interviewing, I think we were just a lot more open-minded about like, who are the types of people that we want to bring in here? And like, how are we thinking about it? Right. There isn't like a, a interview book, you know, for like, this is what, you know, this is what, how to hire diverse people. I think it just starts with the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm in that group. I know, you know, how to make them feel comfortable in this environment and I know how to make them feel accepted. And that's kind of where we, where we went about it. That, that totally makes sense. And, and I appreciate that perspective. I don't know if we can dive a little more deeply into sort of your leadership approach in general. Do you have a sort of philosophy around leading a very successful company? What, what do you instill on your managers and your department heads and, and you know, even the, um, the individual contributors on the teams? I mean, this has definitely been a, a journey for me. I think it's a journey for every founder. I don't think I don't think people really tell you about this um, when you start a company where it's so much about also figuring out who you are, apart from just, you know, the company itself, because it really shapes the type of, you know, product and the type of impact that you can have. And in my case, since we do do a lot of stuff in sports and entertainment, I've had to, you know, kind of pull a few pages out of their books of like, how do they think about growing successful teams and franchises? And like, you know, how are they inspiring you know, their, their fan bases that literally stick with them for like, you know, their entire lives. Um, and one of the things that's kind of really stood out to me is that teams are forged when things go wrong, not when things are going really well. I think my personal goal is about making sure that people know that if the ball's dropped, which it happens, you know, mistakes are going to happen. I'm there to support them. And, and that's kind of what I want them to feel like as well all the time, but also what they want to offer to the people that are reporting up to them. 
And this goes like both ways, by the way, like my team has been incredible at supporting, you know, me through like my own personal growth. I think, you know, with a young first time founder, I've made my fair share of, of mistakes and <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, the Disney tale gets very ugly at times. Um, of course. And so I don't think I would have like learned as much if it wasn't for them, but the line that I use over and over again is like, I care far more about the recovery than the mistake itself. And I care much more about how we recover together as a group versus just as individuals. Smita, can I put that on my wall? And you can. Attribute that to you. <laughs> I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Yeah. I love it. That's awesome. Thank you. So I'm a huge sports fan. I'm excited to ask this question. You get to work with a lot of major sports leagues and teams. So Talk to us a little bit about like the life cycle of those partnerships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, we do. We have like probably one of the most sizable footprints for companies, both, you know, domestically and internationally for the number of like sports leagues and teams and just folks in the entertainment that we work with. Um, And we've been, I feel like very, very lucky in the sense that churn has never really been a problem for us where these people have stayed with us like for years since the beginning of the company. One of our guys at like a major league just left and, you know, instead of finding out about it on LinkedIn, like he gave me a call and we like talked about like 45 minutes as to like where he's going to and like why he's leaving. And I'm like, this is, you know, one of the best parts of like working in sports, you know, where it does feel like, like a family. The, the way we kind of went about it is, is a little different where I think we, again, took the philosophy of like, you know, our customers are in this with us, like we're in this together. Um, and, you know, really making them core to how we think about product development. We also like our approach to sales was unique and it's a little bit different from what you learn in like sales and marketing books, which is about, you know, like the five P's of product price, blah, blah, blah. We, <laughs> you know, the stuff that you learn. There's, there's a lot of blah, blah, blah in those there's, books. <laughs> there's a lot. There are a lot of books out there too, if you, if you, you know, sure. which I'm sure are very good. Um, but the, the take that we took was actually starting with the idea of like, why now? And really kind of explaining and going to people being like, you are so busy. You know, sports is like something that takes over your life. Like, why are you even bothering to talk to a startup? Like, why should we even be on your radar? And, and just by starting with that, I think we were able to build our entire story around it. And we found the fact that one of the biggest urgency drivers for all teams is schedule release. Like once a schedule drops, it's like one of the biggest things that you're ever, you know, going to be focusing on and thinking about. But that's the time when you really want to give better tools to your fans so they can go through and engage with your schedule. And that's where we kind of came in with our add to calendar button. And once they start seeing it on other teams' websites, they were like, yeah, I'll, I'll do it too. And I mean, now we have like 13 million people that have subscribed. And so we've become kind of like bread and butter in that, in that industry. But it was just a simple vision of like, keep these fans informed. And we're making it as easy as like just adding a button to your website. And Smita, you mentioned the you know uh, uh, 13 million subscribers. I could only imagine that's a data scientist wet dream just to see all of that data. Yeah. Is there any particular story where your team, yourself, kind of saw something from the data that you guys were just like stumped, like just were not expecting that to come from what you were seeing? Yeah, totally. Um, I'll start by saying calendar users are very unique. The, the fact that we were always kind of like blown away by is 
a how vocal and engaged they were with the with the product where you know they were always asking for like additional features around you know I want custom notifications I want to be able to like add other types of calendars to my device and I want to be able to see I don't want to see scores I want to see scores and we recently came out with a premium product just to help with that called Stanza Plus and what blew us away is that for our subscribers, the number of calendars, additional calendars that they were adding to their devices, that number is actually like 400. So these people have what? gone through and added 400 other calendars to their devices. So we're stumped. Yeah. Like, who are these people? Wow. Like, yeah. Yeah. What kind of life are you living where 400 count? What? I, that, I'm so stumped by that. <laughs> you and me both. So we're still trying to figure that out. I did not anticipate that at all. Uh, so recently, uh, like within the last year, we've we've seen some interesting things with sports betting becoming more, you know, legal in states, and you know, not just in Las Vegas. So, kind of reading about your partnership with Sports Trader, how are you looking to innovate around that? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing I kind of mentioned this already is like these are users that are highly engaged and we've already seen engagement with ticket sales quite a bit on our platform. Where we've sold over $40 million in tickets um, for people that have subscribed to calendars. We we feel like we can double down on that with betting as well. You know, Samara, you kind of helped talk us through uh, sort of a little bit how, how you got to where you are and talking us through Stanza. I, I kind of like to to know from from sort of your perspective if you could if you could have given some advice to the younger version of yourself what what would you have told yourself? Um, I think I was very very late to the therapy game, um, and I wish I'd taken it more seriously when I was younger. Um, this is a little bit of like a like a curveball of an answer, I know, but um, I feel like for all of my founder friends and you know for anyone who's you know fairly early in their career, I always highly recommending, like, just consider it and, you know, think about it because it just gives you another perspective on like how you can think about yourself and the problems. And for me personally, like math was never a team sport. I mean, no one ever thinks of math of like, you know, it's going to be a bunch of people sitting around doing <laughs> math. That's just not how it is. Sure. So it was, it was a challenge for me going from that to like, Hey, this is team first and the people first. Yeah. And I guess to one of the earlier things you mentioned about, you know, sort of the diversity in the fabric of, of the culture is this kind of concept of mental health and, and taking care of yourself first. Is that also woven into the fabric? I mean, to be honest, I think we, I wish we did a better job of it. Um, and because I feel like with all startups, you do get, get, get caught up with deadlines and like customer requests and sports, go, you know, go, go, you, go, 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 yeah. go. And sports is so ad hoc, right? Like stuff is changing all the time right now. And, you know, like more so now than there was even before COVID. Um, and so for, for, you know, us, like that's always been a challenge and, you know, a little bit of a struggle as a company. So I think that's something we're, we're always thinking about and trying to be like, hey, what are some of the ways we could be tackling that a little bit better? In the next three to five years, do you have any like kind of predictions on how maybe your business will look or even in that space will look like how it's going to change or maybe not change? I don't know. I hope things will be different, um, but better. I think work from home is definitely going to be a new norm. And I think it's going to really change what companies look like. It's going to be a new skill for managers to learn, which is to inspire and be present without actually being in the same room, right? And being able to like 
connect with people physically. I'm we're experiencing it and I'm sure other people will experience that too. The other thing which I think is probably going to play out in our favor is unpredictability. Um I think there's just things are just moving all over the place and and you know in different directions and people have a desire to know and be informed. And I think there is like definitely more of a room for us as a platform now than I would think even pre-COVID. What we're hoping and, you know, our like mantra at work is just to lean into all of this versus like, you know, trying to kind of fight the wave. I love that. I think it's, you know, it's it's a great philosophy to have, right? You, you're there, There's only so much you can control and, you know, sort of don't get yourself caught up in in no, no, no. But how can I be part of it and, and you know, make an impact? Yep. Yep. That's exactly it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Smita. Really appreciate your time today. It was fantastic to, to have a little bit of time to, to pick your brain and, and learn a little bit more about yourself and your business. It was, it was really great talking to you. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Take care. Yeah, you too. Take care. All right. Well, thanks again to our special guest, Smita Saxena. It was great hearing her stories around data, leadership, tech and in the startup world and all of that good stuff. Cheers to that. A reminder for everybody that the links for the Reddit threads we discussed will be in the show notes if you want to check them out afterwards. Thank you again for everyone who made it this far for the Freestar Blood, Sweat, and CPMs podcast. If you do have a spare moment, please check us out on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review and subscribe to make sure that you get all of this high quality content directly into your ears. For feedback or suggestions for guests, you can reach us at podcast at freestar.com. Special thanks to Matt Hanline for our music and to Caroline Romano and Paolo Bautista for helping with editing and production and making sure that people know this podcast exists. Until next time, don't forget to add your macros. Later, alligator. Alligator.